Welcome to Cases of Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm not Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. Uh, as you can tell, I am not Jordan Rubin. I'm David Schultz. Jordan Rubin is uh, still out tending to his new addition to his family. Uh, send cute baby pics to us, Jordan, please. You think Jordan's listening to this podcast on paternity leave? <laughs> well, I'm looking. What else has he got to do? You know, just he's got to deal with a, a new baby. So, Jordan, if you are listening, send pics. Uh, and for the rest of you, we're going to give you a quick roundup of a uh, couple of opinions that uh, the Supreme Court issued this week. And we're going to bring on a guest to talk about a pretty interesting campaign finance opinion. Uh, first off, though, Kimberly, I understand Justice Thomas had uh, a few words to say. Um, what did he talk about? Right. So after we wrapped up our pod on Friday, Justice Thomas gave a speech. Um, typically, when the justices give speeches, it's kind of typical run of the mill, um, you know, nothing too controversial. The court is great. We're not political, blah, blah, blah. Uh, this speech stood out to me because it was it was not that. And so um, Justice Thomas talked a lot about uh, you know, the current court and the mood on the current court being less friendly um, than under the Rehnquist court and didn't name any names, but, you know, kind of said that the, you know, it used to be that, you know, the more liberal justices were nice and you could get along with them and that that's not the case today. Um, he also, uh, when referring to kind of the uh confirmation process, which has gotten kind of increasingly political. Um, he uses the term our side and their side, um, which really felt uh, kind of against the grain of what we've seen some of the other justices saying. Uh, so it was pretty notable. I think it's one of those, you know, speeches that we're going to keep coming back on and pulling little gems from um, to try to understand kind of the inner workings of the court since it is so secretive. Uh, you know, it's only what we hear from the justices, really, what we can tell, you know, the atmosphere of the court. And typically, we get a very rosy picture. And Justice Thomas's picture was was not rosy, uh, especially in light of the leak. Well, in light of the leak, and also in light of a prior scandal for uh, Justice Thomas, scandal might be too strong of a word there, that feels like a billion years ago. But, uh, you know, we forget about the text messages that uh, his wife sent to Mark Meadows on uh, January 6th and before and after. Uh, it seems like he's not really worried about, you know, keeping a low profile after the disclosure there. He's kind of still out there and talking to whoever will listen. Right. So this is something this morning, um, Greg Storn, our, our counterpoint over at Bloomberg News, um, did our weekly court chatter on Twitter spaces. The listeners can go back and listen to that. Um, and our guest, David Latt, talked with us a lot about that, about how the justices seem to increasingly be going to these friendly venues. And so while you might expect, I mean, the first thing that jumped to your mind when you were talking about the atmosphere at the court and like the legitimacy of the court was Justice Thomas's wife and her, you know, activities on January 6th and, you know, efforts to or at least encouragement to overturn the election. Oddly enough, that did not come up at this uh, at this speech. Um, so, you know, there's not really any pushback. And you're right. The justices, when they go to these events, uh, do seem you know, feel safe saying these things, even though, you know, of course, they're live streamed to the public and we're, we're all hearing them. So let's get into the opinions from this week. Uh, we got to, uh, we're going to be going uh, very, very deep into the second one, but let's talk about the first one. It was Patel v. Garland. What's that all about? 
So this is an immigration case that really deals with whether or not federal or court courts can review um, adverse immigration decisions that are made by you know immigration judges, which belong in the executive branch and not within the judiciary. Here, the Supreme Court took a pretty narrow view of uh, judicial review and said that certain decisions were just off limits and totally up to the, the discretion of the executive. I think the thing that's no- most notable about this Patel case is the lineup. So this was a five to four ruling um, um, by Justice spirit in which Justice Gorsuch actually crossed over and joined his more liberal colleagues um, saying that, you know, courts should be able to review these cases. And he wrote a very sympathetic dissent um, with, uh, you know, uh, pointing out that, you know, this is an immigrant who's seeking, you know, humanitarian relief. And what are they to do if the government just kind of messes it up? You know, there's no recourse. Um, So it was very sympathetic. And I guess, you know, that's sort of been a theme for Justice Gorsuch. You know, we saw him recently talk about um, overturning these notorious cases called the Insular Cases, which really, um, we had a podcast on this, which, uh, you know, disadvantages uh, people in U.S. territories, things like Puerto Rico and Guam. And, you know, again, he really seemed to think that the equities for these people uh, weighed in favor of kind of the court going the other way. So something to watch. It's certainly something that he's been sympathetic to um, in the, you know, tribal space. And so maybe we're expanding uh, into immigration. Yeah. Well, for me, it's always just a, an interesting situation when you have Gorsuch siding with the, the three Democratic appointees, because, you know, I guess typically you think of Roberts, the chief justice, as the Republican appointee most likely to side with the Democratic appointees. But in this case, that that didn't happen. Yeah, I think, you know, at this point, there are certain kinds of cases where we expect different justices to kind of cross over. Um, you know, that's sort of always been the case. You know, we think of Justice Scalia crossing over um, in criminal cases, and certainly Justice Breyer has done that even this term. Uh, in criminal cases, you know, as I mentioned, Justice Gorsuch, we really look to him in these tribal cases. And I think it's just more of a case-by-case basis. I think we tend to see Roberts and Kavanaugh crossing over uh, when there's sort of an option to go very far or very narrow. Um, and so that's kind of where we where we might anticipate the crossover there. So um, I think it really just depends on what the issue is. Yeah. All right. Let's get into the other opinion, FEC versus Ted Cruz for Senate. Uh, we have an awesome guest um, who we're going to be talking to in a little bit. Let's uh, set him up. Sure. So this case uh, was decided 6-3 along ideological lines uh, with Chief Justice Roberts uh, writing the opinion for the court, which struck down a portion of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. But which many of our listeners may know better as McCain-Feingold. That's right. Um, and so, you know, this was the latest in the string of cases kind of striking down uh, what are known as contribution limits. Uh, that is how much money people can give to a candidate or their campaign here. We're talking about how much money uh, can be repaid when t- for candidate loans to their own campaigns. Um, so a pretty narrow space, but um, interesting that these kind of contribution limits kind of seem to be continually struck down by the Roberts Court. Um, in contrast to, and we'll talk with our guests a little bit about this, um, disclosure rules. All right. Well, let's get to our guest, Derek Muller from the University of Iowa. 
So with me to talk about this case today is Tarek Muller. He is a law professor at the University of Iowa. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Kimberly. So I briefly um, described the case for our listeners, but this campaign finance case, like every other campaign finance case, is uh, really nitty gritty into the specifics of the law. So can you just kind of situate our listeners and tell us what are the regulations and the laws that are being challenged here? Right. So this all traces back to the bipartisan uh, election law act that was uh, enacted in 2002, sometimes known as McCain-Feingold, after some of the, uh, shall we say, shadiness of the 2000 election (laughs) and how some uh, money was being spent. Um, So portions of this were designed to really clamp down on how money was flowing in various avenues to state parties uh, to try to provide some balance for those who are self-funding campaigns and so on. So in this particular area, it deals specifically with loan repayments. Um, And that is most of the time campaigns need to gather as much money as they plan on spending. And as they fundraise, they sort of balance and figure out how much they're spending as they go along. Uh, But sometimes, especially in a very expensive election or as you're approaching election day, you need to start loaning people money. Um, And one concern that arose in you know the 2001-2002 era as Congress is considering this is that uh, if somebody is loaning you that money uh, and you have to repay them, uh, there is this additional concern that now after the election, I'm already elected, and now people are paying me uh, for my debts, and there's a real concern that there's this appearance of corruption, this concern that somebody is now paying me for a really tangible thing. It's not just I hope you get into office. It's you are in office. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I'm paying you to spend money. Uh, I'm paying you to repay a debt, which is a real obligation. Um, so the rule provides that you can't uh, reimburse someone for more than uh, $250,000 of loans uh if you collecting those contributions after the election. So that's how the, the high level concern that happened. And then there's some more uh, nitty gritty stuff that happens in the regs and how the regs relate to the statute and all that stuff. But that's the overall sort of picture of what's happening here. Great. And in there, you mentioned uh, this is part of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. Um, just to kind of give people a sense of, you know, this is not, definitely not the first time that uh, the Roberts Court has dealt with this law. Um, yes. It's done pretty shabby uh, in the Roberts Court, right? I mean, large kind of portions of it have not uh, been found to be valid by the court. <laughs> um, that's right. So uh, there are a lot of like conditions and qualifications put into this statute about how money is being used. Um, one of them was it it prohibited national party described as soft money, a little bit of sort of fungible spending, fundraising and spending. Um, You you can't take that money and then sort of distribute it to other channels and outlets that's restricted. Um, But in 2014, Congress uh, expanded, allowing for the creation of separate accounts of the national parties for the funding of campaign headquarters, for legal advice, for funding conventions. And so a lot of this money that would have been channeled in other directions, now you can contribute large sums, over $100,000 in a cycle to each of these areas. Uh, so that's like, that's been a congressional side. Um, but on the statutory side, um, there were some bans on corporate and union uh, communications. 
Uh, over the years, that was whittled away once by uh, was a case called Wisconsin Right to Life, and then most famously, uh, Citizens United, uh, and later a case from the D.C. Circuit called Speech Now, which essentially mm -hmm. allows unlimited corporate contributions to independent expenditure packs and corporate expenditures out of those independent packs, as long as they're not coordinating with a campaign. Um, so essentially unlimited fundraising on that front. So that's probably the most uh, you know famous one. Right. Uh, there are some other sorts of provisions um, you know, that, that have been the subject of some other litigation, one known as Davis uh, versus FEC dealing with the Millionaire's Amendment. Um, but but uh, you know, today I'd say there, there are the, the, the two things that are really left of BICRA, or the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, <laughs> uh, BICRA, uh, are you know, the- Rolls sort of, off the tongue. Yes. <laughs> the, the, the language or disclaimers, the sort of stand by your ad, as it's called, I approve this message. Mm -hmm. um, we're so used to that now, but everyone now is required to do that because of BICRA, uh, no hiding behind uh, who is spending the money. Um, and another is uh, bans on uh, how state soft money is used. Again, sort of fundraising and spending that they can sort of dish out to other uses. Uh, so th th there was the, that this has hollowed out state parties pretty significantly. It's made um, state parties uh, it, really difficult to raise money for general expenses uh, mm -hmm. apart from things that are allocated to or allocated toward particular candidates. Um, so that's been a pretty big change in the in the uh, landscape. Um, and again, a lot of these other cases have seen some some whittling down of of the rest of the of the provisions. Right. And I think kind of at, at the heart of many of these cases that you talked about is this kind of foundational um, idea that uh, money is speech. It's the way that candidates, you know, um, speak to the electorate and really this uh, this view of corruption. And the court has taken what I see as a pretty narrow view of corruption. And just wondering if if you share that same kind of thought and if you could explain that a little bit more yeah. um, for people who don't follow this as much. Yeah. I mean, for a while, the court had said corruption is the concern. And so the famous landmark case, Buckley versus Vallejo, which upheld the original campaign finance restrictions passed in, in the wake of Watergate, um, said preventing corruption or the appearance of corruption are sort of significant enough interests to constrain speech. And as you point out, Kimberly, <laughs> constraining how you spend money, right? Mm -hmm. Giving money, contributing money or using money for political expression. Um, but at the same time, the court recognizes, and if I need money to speak, I, it doesn't make sense to say that I can't spend money on television advertisements or I can't spend money on newspaper advertisements uh, because a, a direct ban on advertising would clearly be a core speech violation. So they're mm -hmm. thinking about that, too. Um, but the court has, especially since Citizens United and a case called McCutcheon versus Federal Election Commission, um, has winnowed this definition of corruption more narrowly to say we're talking about quid pro quo corruption. Um, and so that has resulted, I think, in making it much more difficult uh, to regulate this conduct. Mm -hmm. Quid pro quo, the very helpful Latin expression, what for <laughs> which, <laughs> just to say essentially somebody giving you something in exchange for you giving something back to them. 
And so if the if part of the exchange is money to your campaign, we have to think about, well, what evidence then is there that the campaign is going to do something in exchange for that? Now, it feels very much like bribery, which is already illegal. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it sweeps slightly more broadly than than bribery. But it, it emphasizes the court has repeatedly said it can't just look like ingratiation or mm -hmm. access or appreciation or things that feel unseemly <laughs> when somebody gives a politician a large amount of money. Um, so this is just the latest, I would say. Again, this case doesn't particularly break new ground on this point, but the latest in a string of cases to say, look, we're talking about quid pro quo corruption. Mm -hmm. We mean it when we say quid pro quo corruption. And so you have to show that kind of exchange or evidence of that exchange if you're gonna target this kind of behavior. Right. So I guess I, I kind of think it as, you know, when a court is looking at these kinds of laws, they have to balance, you know, what is the concern that the government is trying to target here versus what is the burden uh, on speech. And when you make and when you kind of narrow uh, the con the proper concerns that government right. can take into account, then, you know, that that balancing act is going to is going to be affected. And it's interesting to me, this may be out of your wheelhouse, but <laughs> it's interesting to me that, you know, these regulate, you know, politicians and members of the political branches or the more political branches, whatever you want to say, um, and not the judiciary. Um, and so when you look at, you know, how governments can deal with corruption in the judiciary and in those election, in those, you know, state elections where judges are up for uh, consideration, they can, governments can do more there. The corruption concern seems to be much broader when it comes to the judiciary. And I'm just wondering if you could speak to kind of how the court sees those distinctions. Yeah, I mean, so I would say it's broader. I don't know. <laughs> in recent years, there's been some debate about how much broader, right? So a mm -hmm. couple of landmark cases from the court, um, uh, one called Minnesota Republican Party versus White, essentially said that uh, judges running for state office get significant First Amendment speech protection. So, uh, you know, saying that they support or oppose certain decisions. Uh, there were attempts to clap, clamp down on that direct kind of speech. Um, and the court there, again, it was a very contested sort of proposition, but said, listen, you can't just constrain political actors, even if they're going to serve as judges. We have recusal mm -hmm. mechanisms to deal with that. Um, but on the flip side, a case called williams Lee out of Florida, the court did say it's okay to prohibit judges from personally signing requests for fundraising because this is a very narrow sort of thing. Your campaign committee can do it, you can sort of accept it, but you can't sort of personally be the one doing it. Um, and Justice Alito in, in dissent, you know, had a famous line where he said something along the lines of, you know, the, the, if we're talking about narrow tailoring, this has about the fit of a burlap sack, right? But, <laughs> but the majority said like, this is enough, like this is, it, this is sort of targeting a very narrow kind of thing. So there's no question that when it comes to judges, we think about their ethical obligations a little bit differently, the judicial code of conduct. And courts do have a little bit more generosity than in state legislatures doing uh, and regulating that behavior. But when it comes to sort of outright politicians, <laughs> uh, their ethical obligations maybe look a little bit different. Um, and so therefore, we, we have a different way of, of, of viewing their speech. Hmm. So one thing I want to be sure we talk about um, this case, uh, because I probably wouldn't be talking to you about this case if it weren't <laughs> for the dissent um, written by Justice Kagan. This case 
broke along ideological lines 6-3 mm-hmm. um, with, you know, the more conservative justices than the majority and the more liberal justices in dissent. Um, I guess first I want to talk about, I mean, that's a pretty predictable breakdown in these campaign campaign finance cases. It doesn't seem like that's going to change to me, does it? To you, I mean, do you think Justice Jackson is going to be so much different than <laughs> Justice Breyer, or is this one of those issues where, you know, it really is kind of divided along ideological lines? Yeah, my assumption is uh, probably along ideological lines. You know, mm-hmm. there's been a this has gone back to Buckley. Uh, you know, there there have there was this cobbled together per curiam right. <laughs> where the court <laughs> kind of reaches this sort of equilibrium and balance. And then sort of a series of breakdowns ever since. But I would say I, it's too simplistic maybe to say Citizens United was the dividing line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but Citizens United certainly crystallized kind of a, a, a conservative liberal divide. There were some sort of half measures that had happened in the past. Justice O'Connor was a little bit more of a swing justice in some circumstances. Um, but nowadays, especially, you know, Justice Kennedy was very much a First Amendment hardliner, if you will, mm-hmm. very protective of speech and of thinking about campaign finance rules. And that's continued through with sort of the, the more conservative justices on the court today. Um, so in the last decade, we've seen a pretty hardening of those lines uh, mm-hmm. on most of these campaign finance issues. And then so let's talk about Justice Kagan's opinion here. You know, it, it seems to me more and more in cases dealing with democracy that Justice Kagan is the one who's going to be writing the principal dissent. And she's not really pulling any punches in these uh, <laughs> cases. Um, you know, in this case, she says that, you know, the decision throws the political system into further disrepute. So she doesn't already think very much of it. Um, right. So, uh, you know, what did you think? take away from Justice Kagan's dissent? What struck you about it? I mean, I think, I mean, I, I want to come back. I mean, I, there are some of the facts to think about before we mm-hmm. get into the dissent. And then I think it's a question of the future, right? Because okay. this is, uh, you know, Ted Cruz, who contributed $260,000 in loans, would have been able to repay 250000 under the regs. Um, and needed that last $10,000. <laughs> so in this like narrow, narrow circumstance, mm-hmm. you're like, okay, I, I don't know that the last $10,000 is going to do a whole lot. And as the majority points out, there are already a bunch of other existing regulations. For instance, individuals can't give more than $2,900. So right. even if you're worried about ingratiation or access or appreciation, that $2,900 limit is still going to be a cap, even for those who really want to show appreciation to the campaign now that they <laughs> want, now they want to give it to them. Now, again, for, for Justice Kagan, though, and again, this is always what happens in these campaign finance cases. It's like, well, what does it mean next? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, what is going to happen to democracy, if you will, when we see that future behavior? Is it now going to be, you know, she opens her dissent by talking about a hypothetical half a million dollar loan. Right. And in the future, it could be a million or two million dollar loan. Right. And so you could imagine those circumstances where the loans get larger and larger and then sort of the repayment afterwards, like, oh, then the appreciation grows more and more, the coordination, the bundling, and then maybe we have real problems on our hands. Um, so I think that's certainly a concern. Um, you know, I, I, I do look though and say, looking out at, uh, you know, there are lots of campaigns that end in the red in debt uh, and have real problems paying it off because, well, on the one hand, if you're the loser, it's very hard to get people excited <laughs> about your campaign. Um, and then even for the winner though, uh, a lot of times people like to see you win 
Um, and then they're ready for the next win. They think about contributions as like helping you get elected, not mm -hmm. necessarily as much like repaying your campaign's debts. So will we see a shift of now people, you know, front loading their campaign with dollars and then needing to sort of backfill it with contributions well after the election? And that somehow people are going to be excited and engaged about that. I don't know. I mean, I think Justice Kagan sets up that dark world <laughs> where mm -hmm. that does happen. And people are sort of channeling resources in that way. Um, and so that is a concern. But, you know, it's also a wait and see approach to see how the political actors behave. Right. So this is a perfect segue into the last question I wanted to ask you. Um, what's next? These cases are always kind of percolating um, in the lower courts. What do you see as the next big kind of campaign finance case to come before the justices? Or is it just like, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think who knows? I mean, people are constantly picking at the edges of some of these things. Um, mm -hmm. There was a lot of prediction after a case called McCutcheon years ago, prohibiting the aggregate contribution limit about like, oh, maybe some of the individual contribution limits are next or some of the lower thresholds. Um, that hasn't really panned out. There have been some states that have had some of their laws challenged. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Alaska was a, a recent example. Some states that have had some uh, unusually low limits. The court has sort of like pushed against those. So people are looking in those areas too. Um, and, you know, I think people are mostly waiting to see if Congress is going to act. Maybe that's a laugh line. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I was you know, but, you before you said <laughs> <laughs> You know, the Freedom to Vote Act or some of the bills in Congress have kicked around various forms of Honest Ads Act, Disclose mm -hmm. Act, you know, sort of things that have been in the works for years that just have never made it across the finish line, either as standalone bills or rolled into an omnibus bill. Um, so I think in some ways, you know, there's an atrophying, if you will, of how campaign finance has worked, because not only is the court sort of construing this 20 year old statute and narrowing its scope and reach, but it's also, you know, Congress isn't responding in kind to mm -hmm add qualifications or change things. So there's not a whole lot left, if you will, of things that aren't haven't been on the books for 20 years or so. Again, this is sort of a, a an outlier situation, if you will. Things that are on the books 20, 30, 40 years um, would be the next things up for review. Um, but those are just much heavier lifts you, because you've got lots of precedents that have upheld them. That doesn't mean that this court uh, isn't willing to reconsider stare decisis. Uh, not a new thing to consider, mm -hmm. but it does change, I think, the dynamics about the future uh, of looking at these cases. Well, Kimberly, that was really interesting. Uh, I'm really glad we heard about that and sorted all that out. Um, what does the court have left? Uh, not much, right? You know, just a couple opinions. That's right. So we're uh, in the part of the term where the justices are focused totally on getting out the remaining opinions. Um, we're going to be getting opinions on Monday. Uh, and I think that'll be it for the week. But, you know, who knows? The oldest outstanding case is that big Second Amendment case we did a deep dive on a, a while ago. So, uh, you know, that one could be coming up soon. But wait for Monday. Mm -hmm. Until then, uh, you know the drill. Follow along at news.bloomberglaw.com for all the latest. And uh, again, Jordan, send those pics. Want to see the baby. Hey there, I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor for Bloomberg Government. And I'm Greg Giroux, senior elections reporter for Bloomberg Government. Check out our podcast, Down Ballot Counts. Each week, Greg and I will be breaking down all of those down ballot elections that make up the fight for the U.S. Congress. Listen and subscribe to Down Ballot Counts from Bloomberg Government wherever you get your podcasts.